Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. All right. Howdy, folks. Mike Pearson here. Thanks for tuning in. I'm still in Washington, D.C. today, the final day for the Washington Watch Convention of the National Association of Farm Broadcasters. We'll be bringing a couple of conversations a little bit later on in the program. Segment two, we're going to be hearing a conversation we had with Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg yesterday. Had a great roundtable discussion. A lot of questions from the farm broadcasters covered a very wide swath of topics and we'll have that coming in segment two and then in segment three we're going to hear from greg dowd he a lot of us remember that name he was the chief ag negotiator at the u.s trade representative's office currently he's serving at aimpoint research he'll be joining us with a look at what we're lacking by not having his position filled under this current administration and what he's watching around the world in terms of agri-food issues and then in segment four we're going to talk to sigrid johans she is with the national cattlemen's beef association in the Public Lands Council, and we're going to talk about the difference between preservation and conservation when we're discussing the environment. A lot of thoughts on those issues. But before we jump into all of that, folks, the markets are continuing to move. We've got some big events coming today. The Federal Reserve is going to be coming out with their potential interest rate hike. I think it's widely expected. And we're going to see Europe and their interactions with Russian oil change a little bit. To give us the insight on everything that's moving in the commodity markets, joining me now is Garrett Toy of Ag Trader Talk. Garrett, thanks for talking to us today. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Let's talk first about this FOMC release coming later today. Garrett, is the trade fully expecting to see a half percent interest rate hike? Yes, I think it's, uh, they're fully expecting a half percent interest rate hike. I think a lot of people are also looking for what type of forward-looking language uh, the FOMC is going to offer as far as its $9 trillion uh, worth of uh, ownership of uh, uh, U.S. Treasuries. Um, and uh, the, the market reaction is what the, the trade is watching, whether a lot of this is already fully discounted in the market uh, or, uh, you know, raising interest rates, the, the, the expectations of further interest rate hikes down the road, um, you know, what its impacts are going to be on the economy, slowing things down, slowing investment um, down the road. So uh, how we react out of this report um, is going to be interesting. The equities currently are up slightly. Uh, crude's up $3 here this morning on its, on its own deal. Uh, but greens are under pressure here. Um, you know, I don't know if this is uh, going to have some impact on the greens or not, but I think given some of the tightness of the S&Ds uh, out there, I think you know, end users are looking for potential macro influences uh, to pressure greens in order to extend coverage. Oh, interesting. And so that might be some of the downward pressure we're seeing today. Corn and soybeans, Garrett, lower on the date. Wheat is higher. That tight supply sounds like it's getting a little tighter. Can you fill us in on what's moving the wheat market? Yeah, there's a headline I ran this morning. Well, twofold here. The wheat market's been under pressure here for the most part of the week. I mean, we've had July wheat under pressure for you know, five days in a row. Um, we're right around this 50-day moving average, and we're, and we're technically oversold. But the, the, the key driver here this morning, you know, the whole fallout of the Russian invasion on Ukraine is the, the world's wheat buyers looking for alternative wheat suppliers. And due to that, India has emerged because they've had you know, five straight years of record wheat production. They've emerged as a potential supplier. Well, uh, as luck would have it, or what, uh, bad luck would have it, um, you know, their weather has, has turned uh, detrimental here in, in April, uh, and uh, there's risk to the crop. We've seen production estimates get cut by 5 million metric ton uh, this week, and, and uh, there was a headline or a wire service uh, Bloomberg reporting this morning that, uh, that India's government is, is potentially looking at restricting exports. Now, India is, is right now, they're, as far as the world 
meat exporter, they rank about number eight. They, they, they're expected to ship about 8.5 million metric ton. That puts them between Argentina at 14.5 million metric ton and Kazakhstan at, at 7.0 million metric ton. But when you've got Russia at 33 and Ukraine at 19, and, and we're trying to um, shuffle the, the deck chairs, per se, of, of world wheat exports, uh, everyone uh, you know, looks for the, the cheapest supplier, and India has emerged as that. Now, um, that kind of created some shock here. I think that I've, people I've talked to in the trade uh, on, the, on, the, on the world side or on, on, on the, across the sea uh, kind of expect that India will uh, uh, limit exports here at some point, and, um, you know, that's going to put a lot of pressure on, you know, these end users like Gask and Turkey who have uh, recently passed on uh, export tenders uh, uh, hoping for cheaper prices. Well, Garrett, as we see that global supply of wheat get tighter, whether or not India just loses 6% or they shut off exports, are we going to see global demand be enough for importers to come back to the U.S. or are we still overpriced in the global market on domestic wheat? We are very, we are very still overpriced. Um, you know, it, it's you know they're they're going to look for southern alternatives, and and, and that, the question still remains that um, you know it seems that we find buyers. If you look at price action, it seems like we find buyers under 1050 in wheat in Chicago wheat. Um, but you know, one would argue that we are potentially you know limiting demand. Um, a lot of these end users have been kicking the can down the road, trying to avoid the inverse in the front end, shifting demand to new crop. For the instance of gas, that only goes so far. They've been kicking this can for 18 months, um, trying to avoid front-end inverses. So eventually, I mean, um, you know, I think we are the inverses are rationing demand in here to some extent. But uh, at some point, I think that uh, you know there, there's going to have to be action taken here from these end users to extend coverage. Yeah, buy when you can, not when you have to, particularly in that wheat market. Garrett, looking at corn, a little bit of pressure we're seeing today. What what are your downside targets? Actually, you know, we're here. I mean, I think that there's a couple of interesting notes to take. Is that we're, we're testing the downside end of this channel that we're in. Uh, we did have an outside day lower here today. We've got this the 20-day moving average 789. Um, it, it, it was pointed out by a good friend that we, we sold off on the FOMC last month to the tune of about 30 cents. Well, <laughs> 7.93 this morning is, is about 31 cents. So we're seeing a very similar type sell-off today uh, that we saw into the, the Fed uh, action last month. Um, but I think we're getting towards the lower end of the range. If we don't hold these levels, I mean, the 7.75 area, you know, if we get a flush under that 7.89, uh, moving average, you know, 775 support, and if that does happen, uh, that would mean a, a, a breakdown of the of the uh, the uptrend. But at this point, the uptrend still remains intact, in my opinion. Um, and uh, you know, it's this is just a technical correction. It was a good sign yesterday that we went back up and kind of filled that gap that was created Sunday night. So I, I think this is just a, a healthy correction, if you will. A little bit of a correction market taking a little bit of a breather. Folks, we've been talking to Garrett Toy of Ag Trader Talk. Garrett, thanks for joining us today. We always appreciate your insights. Hey, I appreciate you guys. And folks, stick with us when we return. We'll have that conversation with Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg here on Agriculture of America. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. University trials and grower use proves that adding tough 5EC to the post tank mix significantly improves the control of resistant weeds such as Palmer amaranth, water hemp, and kochia. Tough 5EC is a selective contact herbicide that synergizes with HPPD inhibitors and enhances atrazine with fast results. Tough 5EC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Soil, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before. Farmer's Log, Soil Date 31655.4. 
We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. I guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's soil fleet humor. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. Time is money, right? And money? Well, it's the whole reason we go to work every day. Cenex Premium Diesel protects both. With a more complete additive package for a more complete burn, Cenex Roadmaster XL helps your entire fuel system stay up and running, so you can count more profits and steer clear of losses. Now don't spend all that free time in one place, unless it's the highway. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Hey Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in today. You know, here in Washington, D.C., for the Washington Watch Gathering of National Association of Farm Broadcasters, we have been having discussions with a lot of folks, both inside and outside this administration, connected to various issues that, that grapple with things close to us here in rural America. One of the folks we had the chance to hear from yesterday, both in terms of uh, he came and gave us a little presentation, and we had the chance to do a little roundtable discussion, was with Secretary. Pete Buttigieg, the Secretary of the Department of Transportation, and we spoke quite a bit about the issues with the bipartisan infrastructure bill, some of the supply chain challenges that he has been working to confront in his role as head of that department, and importantly, what the rollout of these funds looked like. He began the discussion by sharing with us his department's goals under the passage of this new bipartisan infrastructure act. We're very much in the business of creating the foundation for what it's going to be like to live and work and do business in America for the rest of our lifetimes. And the truth is the foundation of our economy and the, the foundation of our way of life that is our infrastructure has been permitted to get shaky. And that's happened over the course of many decades. And that's been more true in rural areas than, than not. And so a big part of the solution has to be to make investments in rural infrastructure which is exactly what we're doing. And the need is enormous. Over 13% of rural roads are in poor condition. There are over 3,000 closed bridges right now in rural areas and another 50,000 that have some kind of load or weight restriction, which often has the same effect in terms of forcing people into detours and, and delays. And of course, often it's in a rural area where you don't have a lot of alternatives when the bridge is out or load limited. Uh, it can mean that uh, an average detour is three times longer in rural communities. And that, of course, affects the shipping times for products. It affects uh, uh, agriculture and the ability to export and move goods around. It affects how much we pay at the grocery uh, because shipping times turn into shipping costs. We also know there are a lot of safety issues on our roads in America, uh, and that is especially acute in rural communities. Uh, 
in terms of some of the specific issues we've seen with our supply chains, uh, we've been teaming up with our partners from the Department of Agriculture and others around the uh, interagency. We've opened uh, what are called pop-up ports, temporary container yards at key agricultural export centers and nodes. Uh, we've made an unprecedented level of funding available to modernize port infrastructure in particular, We're working on data sharing between a lot of the key players. Data that many people might assume is already shared, but it isn't. Uh, from ports to terminal operators to shippers to uh, warehouses uh, to railroads and others. And those port issues and supply chain troubles are certainly something that the department has been working on. And there was a question, just how much of these disruptions at the ports are being caused by shortages of labor and what is being done to grow the workforce? So one of the first questions that, that arose uh, from the White House, actually, when we had the idea of uh, pushing 24-7 operations at our biggest container ports was, do we have the, the uh, staffing, the, the labor to do it? And I'll say in our conversations with the longshore workers, uh, they have stepped up and made sure that, that they are ready to staff and, and, and operate these increased assets, these increased hours, um, because there's, there's increased need. I know there's a sense out there that, that we're moving less goods th than we have before. It's actually not the case. If, if you look at LA Long Beach, for example, uh, just got the numbers on the first quarter of this year, it is an all time record high in terms of the volume that's moved. It's just that the demand is even greater. And so the supply and the supply chains are having trouble keeping up. And that, but that movement that's happened is, is largely uh, credit to the workers in that sector. I do think workforce more broadly is going to continue to be a challenge, whether it's in uh, operations or the sheer level of building that we've got to do to uh, deliver these investments that, that the law has funded. And it's one of the reasons why we're really emphasizing the, the different steps that are needed to, to get people trained and skilled up. I was just in Coloma, Wisconsin, um, uh, smack in the, in the geographic middle of the state uh, where the operating engineers have, a, a, I think, a couple hundred acres uh, of training facility. They, they can do every, it's like a, uh, if a kid's in a con construction, it's like their, their ultimate fantasy of a, of a, um, a sandbox to, to um, but, but obviously very serious stuff going on there in terms of training on everything from excavators to, uh, to pile drivers um, to prepare that next generation for the future. And they drew kids from all around the state. The day I was there was a, a program for high schoolers, an externship day. Uh, where students could come and, and get a sense of, of what it would actually be like to work in that field. And we need young people to know that there are good paying jobs that are available uh, that require skill and sophistication, but don't require a college degree. And that there's a, a long steady pipeline of those jobs because this infrastructure law is a multi-year plan. Uh, so we're gonna continue having to work to make sure that we have the, uh, the, the, the human resources to, to do this. Um, but uh, there's no doubt in my mind that America has the capacity to make it happen. We just got to support that that workforce development. Biofuels policy was also up for discussion with the secretary being asked, where and how do you see biofuels fitting into the transportation system over the next decade while this push for electric vehicles continues? Well, first, we're, we're talking about a big and complex transition, so there's no question that, that biofuels are, are going to be a very important part of, of America's energy mix. I would also point to areas where I think there's a lot of upside growth potential um, to include uh, the maritime sector, which has proven very hard to decarbonize and could potentially benefit uh, from biofuels and other fuels with lower life cycle uh, carbon emissions. Um, I would also point to aviation. You know, uh, we're, we're not going to see electrically propelled wide body jets anytime soon. Uh, but what we are seeing is a move towards sustainable aviation fuels, where I believe uh, uh, the, um, uh, the, the heartland could, could play an important and exciting role. And, and I do want to mention on, on the electric vehicle opportunity, the, the fact that uh, from, a, from a consumer perspective, it's probably in rural America that many people, provided they can afford electric vehicles, and we're working on helping with that with our tax credit policy, can, uh, it's in those regions where there's the most upside. For, for the simple reason that people drive longer distances, so they buy more gas or diesel, so they're going to save more money. And you add to that the fact that it's in rural communities that people are most likely to live in single-family homes, which means uh, you have some kind of charging infrastructure available to you already. It's, it's the plug in your wall uh, in, in a garage. And so I, I, I know that, that electric vehicles entered the market and, and, and entered our imagination maybe as something for affluent city dwellers. 
um, but especially when you see these pickup trucks coming on the market, uh, I actually think from a consumer perspective, it will be in, especially over the next three to five years, in rural America that a lot of the most compelling uh, uses and, and, uh, and savings actually materialize. While we were on the topic of electric vehicles and federal policy about them, Jeff Nally of Cromwell Media asked the secretary, "Okay, if this is a push towards EVs, where do you see funding for infrastructure coming as that gas tax becomes a less reliable funding mechanism for maintaining the infrastructure around the country? Yeah, one of the things we're we're watching closely is how different states are approaching this, because there are a lot of of different strategies, and I don't think uh, any one has taken hold as as the answer among the states. Federally, it was very important to the president that whatever we did to fund the infrastructure law not entail any tax increase on any American making any less than $400,000 a year, which is why uh, something like a, a gas tax was quickly ruled out. Um, uh, uh, or, or, or for that matter, uh, uh, you know, any other kind of a, a assessed fee uh, on drivers. And it turned out, indeed, we did not need to do that, didn't need to go there in order to, uh, to fund this infrastructure law. Uh, but those long-term questions, I think, are going to persist. Now, uh, uh, up until now, Congress has filled in those gaps in the Highway Trust Fund with general, uh, general fund dollars. Um, that's one way, but certainly not the only way to handle this. And I think that uh, those questions will come to a head by the end of this decade. And I had the chance to ask the secretary about the impact of NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act. We discussed on the show last week this new final rule that's going to require much wider impact assessments on really any federal infrastructure project. Well, I think uh, uh, much depends on the properties of each individual project, but it's very important to us to efficiently and promptly deliver the projects that are funded with the dollars in the, in the infrastructure law. Now, uh, part of what we're doing under the uh, uh, one federal decision provisions that are in that law uh, is actually smoothing and simplifying some of the processes, especially as it relates to categorical exclusions. A lot of projects that don't need to go through a full environmental impact statement. Uh, when something does need to go through all of those steps, that doesn't have to mean uh, very long delays and, uh, and expense, provided that uh, the, the uh, project sponsor walks through it in the right way. And so part of what we And the secretary went on to mention that the DOT will be releasing tools to help folks around the country be able to apply for and bring this infrastructure funds back to the roads that really need it. Folks, stay with us here on AOA. Greg Dowd of Aimpoint Research will be joining us when we return. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. One of the higher risk aspects of farming is crop protection application. With label changes, regulations, equipment maintenance, and drift management, it's a lot of risk. And a great way to manage it is to rely on your local FS and FS crop applicators. They constantly train to keep up with the latest label changes, regulations, and best practices. So your crop is protected and risks reduced. Contact your local FS to learn more about our custom application programs. It's one more way FS is bringing you what's next. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business with than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet. Ukraine has made progress toward increasing grain exports in April. Exports during the month are estimated at 1.26 million metric tons of grain and oil seeds, which is roughly one-fifth of pre-war export levels, but more than double what we saw in March. The April total included 832,000 tons exported by rail, 317,000 tons exported by sea, and 115,000 tons exported by road. April exports included 768,000 tons of corn, 127,000 tons of wheat, 48,000 tons of soybeans, 110,000 tons of sunflower, and just under 18,000 tons of soybean oil. 
The exports are an essential part of financing the planting of the 22 crops in Ukraine, which Russia would like to prevent. Even going so far as to completely destroy a grain elevator in eastern Ukraine that was capable of holding 30,000 metric tons of grain. And there are reports that Russian troops have stolen 400,000 metric tons of grain so far from grain storage facilities. Now, many countries previously counting on Ukraine for wheat shipments turned their focus on India in recent weeks, hoping that it could help fill the deficit in the supply. However, that looks a bit less likely after recent reports that India's wheat production is falling short of expectations. Hot temperatures in March hurt the crop as it was going through the critical grain fill period of development, reducing yields. Let's take a look at our commodity numbers. July corn up a half at 793 and a half. July beans down five and three quarters at 1624 and three quarters. Bean meal July down 510 a ton at 41880. Bean oil July up 77 at 8105. Wheat Chicago July up 24 at 1069 and a half. Kansas City July up 20 at 1112 and three quarters. That July Minneapolis wheat is up 12 and a half at 1168. Live cattle June up seven cents at 135.40. Feeders May up two pennies at 162.42. And those Maylene hogs, they are up a buck sixty-five at 101.42. This is AOA. I'm Richard Risvet. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Yesterday, again, here in D.C., we had a chance to hear several panels. One of them was about what the non-agricultural community is looking at with regard to the farm bill here in 2023. We'll have some of those conversations coming in later days here on the show. And then we had a chance to hear about agricultural trade. And we talked to two folks who were very active during the previous administration, Ambassador Greg Dowd from the U.S. Trade Reps Office at the time, and uh, Ted McKinney, former uh, Undersecretary of the USDA. A lot of great discussions happening on trade. It's a fraught topic in the world of agriculture right now. And so I wanted to pick Greg Dowd's brain just a little bit further. So he's agreed to join us here on the show today. He's currently serving as the Vice President of Global Situational Awareness with Aim Point Research. Previously, as I mentioned, he was the Chief Ag Negotiator under the U.S. Trade Representative's Office. Ambassador Dowd, thanks for joining us here today on the show. Mike, how are you? Good to talk to you. Well, I am fantastic, sir. Before we get into looking to the future of agriculture, which I know is how you spend your time anymore, I want to talk about your former role at the U.S. Trade Reps Office. That chief ag negotiator position has not been filled since the Trump administration came to an end, Greg, and you left. Tell us, for our listeners out here who aren't plugged in to the world of global trade necessarily, what are we in agriculture losing by not having that position filled? Well, that's a really interesting job uh, in the U.S. government because your portfolio is total U.S. agricultural exports and all of the issues uh, trade related to that. And that's uh, last year we exported $177 billion worth of ag products. And uh, in the nearly three years that I was in that job, that is when we renegotiated USMCA, Canada and Mexico. Uh, I spent a year of my life, uh, 33 negotiating sessions, hundreds of hours with the Chinese as part of the Chinese uh, phase one trade agreement. And we also slipped in there, I think probably one of the great unsung trade deals of all time was the deal we did with Japan 
uh, which uh, was uh, an agreement that essentially got us everything that uh, we would have had in TPP except for a couple of items. Uh, now we we have that secured here now for a couple of years. So uh, that when you add those four countries up, that's about half of U.S. ag exports that in Kansas farm boy terminology we overhauled while I was in that job. Indeed you did. And now it's just sitting. All of this work that you completed, Greg, you mentioned 33 negotiating sessions with the Chinese government, getting that phase one deal across the finish line. And then you've seen it sort of in the hands of this administration. Greg, what's your take on how that phase one deal has been treated since you left office? Well, fortunately, that's one of the one things that they haven't uh, touched so far uh, in, in this administration. And in that agreement, we fixed some 57 structural changes uh, in our trading relationship with China and agriculture. I'm happy to report that today, I think we're probably, you know, 53 or four of those are complete, done, uh, changed and overhauled. And, and what that has done is before we did all that, we had about 1,500 facilities eligible to export products, to, ag products to China. Today, we have well over 4,000 facilities and that's the reason uh, in in the last year we've gone from 26 billion in ag exports to China to uh, last year 33 billion and Greg with those approvals now that we've got over 4,000 of them they're set right do the, these exporters don't need to do anything additional to maintain this access to China as things stand right now is that right that, that's right and in fact this was one of the major things that we did and this discussion that actually a lot of other countries like the Australians are really unhappy with us is we broke the code and figured out and we have an agreement now with China if we have new products or new facilities that FDA or USDA food safety inspection service puts on uh, as approved in the United States uh, we send that updated list to China they have 30 days to update their uh, list or they're in breach of the agreement and uh, so far, uh, China has been uh, vigilant in, in, in making those things happen. And the other thing that has been good about this is that USTR, we, we're in continuous conversations with the Chinese. When I was still there and, and even now, there, there are still ongoing conversations. And that's as it should be because we're the two largest economies in the world. I mean, we're, there are a lot of things where we're not going to get along, but uh, hopefully in terms of ag trade, uh, we've turned a big corner here. That is good news. Greg, in your current role as economist with Aimpoint Research and the, the, the vice president of global situational awareness, you keep an eye on, on what's happening around the world. And so I want to ask you about a couple of different regions looking out to the future. The first is Eastern Europe. You mentioned Russia, Ukraine, the ongoing fights there. Greg, as you folks at Aimpoint look out to that region long term, what do you see some of the biggest lasting implications of this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine to be? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and to kind of give some background, uh, my colleagues at Aimpoint, most of these guys are military guys. West Point, uh, three of them went to West Point. Uh, two of them were uh, colonels, uh, long military careers. These are really, really some of our best and brightest in this country. And, and uh, they're experts on this Ukraine, Russia, Middle East, that part of the world. I mean, they, they understand this at a whole different level than I do. And, and what we see here going on is, is if you talk to these, my colleagues, is this, this is, we're in this for the long haul. This, this is going to be a long slog. But at some point, I think, eventually, the agricultural uh, commodity trade component of this kind of sorts itself out. But I, I think we're uh, in agreement, and we're talking to our folks a lot, our clients a lot, about the fact that the one commodity that may never come back and be the same is fertilizer. And that is because you have, uh, you know, Russia, Ukraine, and China are major producers and major exporters of this. And, and now you have a situation where Brazil, India, China are major uh, producers and farmers around the world that they need this fertilizer. You know, to, to just be frank about it, they're all hogging it. And they're all trying to figure out how to uh, make sure that they have what they need. And if the United States isn't in there uh, making sure that we have what we need on behalf of U.S. farmers, uh, this could be a serious problem. So uh, I, I think the, the one area that we're focused on a lot right now is fertilizer. 
From that perspective, and and gosh, we've certainly heard a lot about fertilizer pricing over this past year, Greg, for growers who are looking out to the future, they want to be in production for the next 50 years. And as of now, we're going to need fertilizer to make that happen. What steps should we be taking in 2022, either individually as producers to secure that, or as a country, what should we be working on in order to secure access to fertilizer? Well, you know, historically, we produced, you know, fertilizer is a on the nitrogen side is a component of natural gas. And obviously we've got plenty of that. And, you know, we used to have more domestic production years ago than we have today. I think there, you know, that, but what is it? 10% of our uh, nitrogen need is, is imported, maybe a little more than that. So I think, I think, uh, you know, we can work on that where it gets more serious is on the phosphorus and, and phosphate side of the equation. You know, about a third of that or 30% of that in the world comes from China uh, that all these problems began last August, September, with the blackouts in China due to the fact that they were running themselves out of coal. Half the provinces in China had uh, electrical blackouts. Uh, when you have that, you're not running your, uh, your, your manufacturing to uh, make phosphate fertilizers, etc. And then probably one of the more interesting conversations is about potash and the fact that uh, there are only a few places on earth that you can get that stuff. Uh, we need a lot of it. Brazil needs a lot of it. Uh, there, there's going to be some pretty heady competition for that. And, and I think, uh, you know, you, you've got uh, Canada there right to the north. It, it, let's uh, let's make sure that we have this locked down and secured going forward, because I know the Brazilians are up there talking. Uh, everybody is acutely aware of uh, what's going on on the pious side of the situation. That is absolutely true. And I want to take your focus to another part of the globe. It was announced early on in the Biden administration about some agreements that had been signed with the country of India, Greg. And I know that that you folks had been working on that during your time in the trade reps office. Can you tell us a little bit about how you see India fitting into the global agricultural trading chain here over the next couple of years? Well, Under Secretary McKinney and I, uh, I'm uh, Ted probably spent a lot more time than I did on India, and rightfully so. You know, here in another year or two, there are going to be more people in India than there will be in China. They have some of the highest tariffs in the world in agriculture, one of the most protectionist places on earth and uh, is Indian agriculture. Uh, one of the first things that I did, uh, my first trip to Geneva to the WTO when, when I was in that job, uh, slid across the table the first counter-notification in other words, the Indians submitted that what they were what their subsidies were to the WTO. We did our own research and found out that they were just preposterously off in terms of what they were saying. Uh, we informed India and the world uh, that they were. They didn't like that very well, and I, and I think uh, you know that's where you know this one of the key jobs uh, at USTR that what we do around the world is is uh, make sure that there's transparency and everybody understands what's going on. And uh, you know India is not. Uh, not a real good player when it comes to that topic. And in fact, uh, the director general of the WTO was recently in the United States, and she made that point as well, uh, that when it comes to agriculture, uh, India is uh, not playing uh, above board, and, and uh, that needs to be addressed. All right. Hopefully we can. We're at least seeing that that movement in that direction to address it. Greg, I know at Aimpoint, you guys work with individuals, businesses, organizations of all sizes. If we've got listeners who want to get in touch with you and, and dig more detail into these ag uh, situations globally, how can they get in touch with Aimpoint? Yeah, just uh, our website, aimpointresearch.com. Uh, you know, we do uh, really good market research and wargaming is kind of our specialty with these military guys. Uh, something that's really interesting and unique as you look out into the future, what things are going to look like. That's how we do it. They're always changing. We're going to have to get you on, Greg, and run through how those war games work. I look forward to that. Thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. And folks, stick with us. We'll hear from Sigrid Johans from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. 
This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma. Not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. I drive my bus in a busy city. That's why road safety is so important to me. I know that I must slow down and be extra careful when I make a wide turn. Buses need more room than cars. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, remember to give buses plenty of time and space to finish turning before driving ahead. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. University Trials and Grower Use proves that adding Tough 5EC to the post-tank mix significantly improves the control of resistant weeds such as Palmer Amaranth, Waterhemp, and Kochia. Tough 5EC is a selective contact herbicide that synergizes with HPPD inhibitors and enhances atrazine with fast results. Tough 5EC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Mike Rowe here with a gentle reminder that civilization is held together by pipes, wires, and cables. It's true. There are over 5 million miles of gas lines, power lines, fiber optic lines, water lines, and sewer lines all buried beneath your feet. And every 60 seconds, somebody digs into one. Look, if you're thinking about digging around, do yourself a favor and call 811 first just to find out what's down there. Trust me. You don't want to find out the hard way. Call or click 811 before you dig and visit safeexcavator.com for more info. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Smart stays on the road. That's why it's in your engine. Because you wouldn't settle for subpar performance. Cenex Maxtron synthetic diesel engine oils give you the smartest oil for the toughest conditions. These premium oils maintain 80% of their viscosity throughout the drain interval for superior engine performance across extreme temperatures. That horizon looks good with the competition behind you. Cenex Maxtron diesel engine oils. Oil that runs smart. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? Stop. That dog does not want to be petted. (laughs) A heads up before something bad happens. You should not send that text. Uh Uh-oh. Life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. With early diagnosis and a few healthy changes, you can reverse prediabetes and prevent or delay type 2 diabetes. To learn your risk, take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. 
Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks. Thank you for making AOA a part of your day. Well, the environment is certainly a hot topic, particularly under this administration. And there are a couple of phrases that are always being thrown around in the context of the environment. One is environmental protection, right? We hear that with the EPA. The other is conservation. What's the difference and how do they work? Joining me now is Sigrid Johans. She is the Associate Director of Government Affairs for the Public Lands Council and the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Sigrid, thank you for joining us. And tell us, what is the difference between preservation and conservation? So they are very different and cattle producers as well as ag producers across the board are team conservation. Preservation, especially as the way that this administration has interpreted it, tends to be a very sort of hands-off, let's put a glass dome over this ecosystem uh, type approach. They don't tend to favor active management such as fuel treatments, something that we, uh, you know, is particularly top of mind given that wildfire season is already off to a a terrible start in the West. Uh, But ag producers and and certainly our members at NCBA and PLC are very much in favor of conservation. We want to be able to actively manage these landscapes in a way that is flexible and regionally regionally specific, excuse me. So when you do that, you can apply things like grazing, livestock grazing, to achieve a wide range of goals. There's a place for grazing when it comes to reducing wildfire risk, when it comes to managing invasive species, and a whole host of other goals. Sigrid, as you think about this administration's approach to preservation of the environment, have there been any recent examples where the Biden administration has highlighted its preservation approach? Certainly. So I think one example, you mentioned Earth Day at the top. Uh, On Earth Day this year, the Biden administration put out an executive order uh, about the need to protect or preserve old growth forests because of their importance as carbon sinks. Now, Proper forest management is something that no cattle producer, especially in the West, is opposed to. We certainly see the need for that, uh, but we would argue that there were some missed opportunities in that executive order where you could have uh, built in a role for grazing permittees and other land users, uh, obviously multiple use is important on federal lands, but you could have built in a role for other land users there to really take an active approach to reducing fuel loads in those forests. And, you know, we have had to point it out over and over again within the context of this 30 by 30 initiative, but putting, you know, your fingers crossed and, and protecting these beautiful green spaces is all well and good until they burn down the next fire season. So we need to be taking a proactive approach to really recognize recognizing the needs on the ground and then coming up with specific ecosystem uh, you know, solutions. And we would say livestock are an important part of that. Sigurd, you mentioned the 30 by 30 program. That's something that I'm sure a lot of my listeners have heard about out there. There have been a lot of headlines. It's been floating around the social media for quite a while. What is it? Yeah, so it has been floating around for a while. It's been uh, just about a year now since they rolled out this initiative, and we have still yet to receive answers to some of the most fundamental questions that that need to get answered here. For both public and private landowners, it's obviously a big question of what counts as conservation. We haven't really gotten clarity yet from the administration about what lands are going to count towards this total of 30% of lands in the United States. How are they going to quantify 30% of all waters? That's obviously a pretty challenging thing to do. So, you know, there's a lot of gaps that go unanswered here. But I think one thing that NCBA and PLC have been able to stress repeatedly at multiple points in this process is that grazing is conservation. Again, going back to that theme that this is not just a permitted use and it's not just something that people do on their private lands across the West and the Midwest. It's a real conservation tool. It's something that you can use to achieve all of these different goals. And when it comes to 30 by 30, you know, the other, I would say that's sort of the carrot, the other maybe little less friendly line that we've had to deliver a few times is that you can't get to this total without ag producers. And that is just the plain old math. It doesn't work out to get to your goal and 30 by 30 on paper if you don't incorporate, uh, you know, farmers and ranchers on the ground who are doing this work every day and, and other kinds of land managers as well. So making sure that we have an active voice at the table is extremely important there. When you make that comment to the folks who are discussing this 30 by 30 program, you can't get there without agriculture. Secret, what's the response? Do they recognize that? Do they respect it? Is the fact that we don't have any paperwork on this indicative of an administration trying to still write the rules? 
You know, that's a great question. I think we've had really productive conversations and productive responses from some of our partners at um, the Bureau of Land Management, for example, the Fish and Wildlife Service. There are certainly people who we work with each day in the administration who recognize what we're saying and who recognize that they need grazing permittees and ag producers more broadly in order to reach these goals. I think the lack of movement that we're seeing on this, you know, uh, could be attributable to a lot of different things, but the Biden administration certainly has no shortage of things on their plate right now. And one thing that, you know, we're talking here today in Washington, I think one of the things that everybody is very aware of is that the midterms are coming up. And so the dynamic uh, with which everyone approaches these conversations is going to shift throughout the summer. That's just an unfortunate reality of, of how the game goes here. Um, and so I think we've been very focused on trying to, you know, make as much progress as we can to build those productive relationships and I think we're we're certainly glad that we have those folks we can go back to over and over again, even as some of the dynamics, you know, change around us. Seagrid grazing season's about to get started here in the West. The drought is still in place across a lot of that geography. What is the PLC pushing for with regard to grazing here in the summer, given that the drought's going to be a factor for the next several months? Absolutely. Um, there are three things that come to mind when you say that. Number one is we have been pushing for continued and you know robust funding for all of the different disaster relief programs that help producers, not only in extreme drought conditions, but then again also in those post-fire situations across the West. So making sure that our disaster programs are fully funded, fully deployed on the ground, that's obviously a key step. You can approve money in Congress, but if it's not actually going out the door, that's a big deal. Um, that's what makes the difference for folks. So making sure that those programs are fully funded, fully ready to go is one thing. Another thing that's come up a lot in recent conversations that we've been having with folks on the Hill is making sure that uh, grazing permittees across the West have access to vacant allotments. Um, there is a lot of land out there that is sitting, you know, un unused currently uh, that we argue should be made available to grazers uh, when they can't have sufficient forage on their allotments, or even in some cases when they need to mitigate conflict with wildlife. That's another circumstance where folks will need to make use of those allotments. Folks, that was Sigrid Johans, Associate Director of Government Affairs at NCBA and the Public Lands Council. Sigrid, thanks for joining us. And folks, tune in tomorrow. Arlen Suderman will join me on the show, and we'll talk in more detail about these markets. Thanks for joining us on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it twice a day. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it in the morning and before dinner. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it, and share it with my doctor. Nearly one in two U.S. adults have high blood pressure. That's why it's important to self-monitor your blood pressure in four easy-to-remember steps. It starts with a monitor. Now that I know my blood pressure numbers, I talked with my doctor. We're getting those numbers down. Be next to talk to your doctor about your blood pressure numbers. Get down with your blood pressure. Self-monitoring is power. Learn more at manageyourbp.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the American Heart Association, and the American Medical Association in partnership with the Office of Minority Health and Health Resources and Services Administration.